church. Father, I ask that you just please help us as we look at this uh, passage and we try to preach out of it. Uh, I pray that you just help me to step aside and let the Holy Spirit take control in your precious name. I pray. Amen. Okay, well, we're there in Genesis chapter number 14. And um, we'll probably be in Genesis 14 for two weeks, and I'll explain that to you in a little bit. But um, just by way of introduction, look at verse number 1 again. Let's get a good idea of the story. Genesis 14, 1. Um, If I mispronounce some of these names, I don't feel bad because you don't know how to pronounce them either. (laughs) But um, in Genesis 14, 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass in the days of um, Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now, I want you to keep in mind a few things. It it says, Amraphel, king of Shinar, number 1. Kama, Ariok, king of Elasar, number 3. Keterleomer, king of Elam, number 3. And Tidal, king of, nation, of nations, that's a total of four kings. Now, these five kings, um, there, there, there are five kings, and when you look at verse number two, those are four kings. That's, that's, you, you can consider that like one king, okay? That's one side. If you look at verse uh, two in Genesis 14, it says, Then these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, one, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, two, and Shinab, king of Adma, three, and Shemavor, king of Zeboim, Four and the king of Vila, which is Zoar, that's a total of five. So you've got in verse one a total of four kings, and in verse five a total. I'm sorry, in verse two a total of five kings. And Bible says in verse three all these were joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. So these kings are gathering together to have a war. All right. Um, if you look at verse four, the Bible tells us why they're doing this. It says twelve years they. Now that they is referring to the five kings in verse 2, okay? It says, they served Chedorlaomer. Now Chedorlaomer was the king of Elam. He was one of those four kings in verse number 1. I hope I'm not confusing you. I want you to understand what the story is talking about. Because God doesn't just say things to say them. They're, they're in here for a reason. And then the Bible says, and in the 13th year they rebelled. So we got these five kings, which the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah are one of those five kings, who served this king King uh, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and they serve him for 13 years. Now, it's interesting that at year 13, it's when they rebel against this king. In the Bible, you'll notice that uh, the number 13 is always a number of rebellion. All right? and, and you find that just in life. You know, uh, At 13 years old is usually when teenagers begin to rebel. 13 colonies rebelled against you know, Mother England and, and all of that. So that's usually how it works for whatever reason. But after 13 years, they decide they're going to rebel against uh, this king... And on the 14th year, if you look at verse 5, and in the 14th year they uh, came Chedorlaomer, and the kings that were with him, that's referring to the four kings in verse 1, and they're going to battle against these five kings. You understand what I'm saying? Now here's the interesting thing. These four kings are coming to do battle with these five kings, but on the way to do battle with the five kings, they defeat an additional six kings. And it tells us there in verse 5, it says, And in the 14th year came uh, Chedorlaomer, and the kings that were with him, that's the four kings, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, uh, Kurnaim, and Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in, you know, and it goes on for verse 6 and verse 7, I'm not going to go through all those names again. But it tells you about six additional kings that they destroy. Okay, on their way to this battle. Does that make sense? I want you to understand the story because, you know, sometimes we read these things and we think, oh, what's all that information? It's in there for a reason. 
God is trying to show us how powerful these four kings were. Because these four kings are coming down to fight against five kings. Wouldn't you think five kings would have an advantage over four kings? Five nations over four nations? But not only that, these four nations are coming down, and on their way, they destroy an additional six nations. Because they're thinking, if we're going to make this trip, we might as well make the best use out of it, you know? Might as well put our our money to work for us, and we're going to go down there and fight against them. So they destroy an additional six kings, and they defeat them. Now if you look at verse 8 in Genesis 14, 8, the Bible says, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the kings of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. So those are our five kings. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddam. Verse 9, the Bible says, With uh, Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariel, king of um, Elasar, four kings with five. So it's saying you got four kings versus five kings. Okay? Now the four kings beat the five kings for a total of eleven kingdoms that they just took down in this one adventure. You follow what I'm saying? In verse 10 it says, And the veil of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And fell there, and they had remained fled uh, to the mountains, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all the victuals, and went their way. So these four kings come down, they destroy six kings on the way, they beat these five kings, uh, king of Sodom and Gomorrah, they run away, um, and the other kings run away, and they take all the goods from Sodom, they take all the goods from Gomorrah, they take all the victuals, and, and they went their way. Now look at verse 12. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, uh, and departed. Now let me just say this, this isn't part of the sermon, but maybe for the kids that are here, you know, Lot was at the wrong place, where he should not have been, at the wrong time, and he got taken along with them. You know, I've heard stories of, uh, uh, I remember when, when I was a teenager, we had a, our youth pastor would always tell us a story about a kid who was hanging out, one of his, the kids from his youth group, before, before, I didn't know him, it was before I was there, and there was this kid, who was a good kid, you know, just a normal kid. He was, you know, he, he was hanging out with friends he shouldn't be hanging out with. He knew he shouldn't be hanging out with them. They decided they were going to go out somewhere, you know, hang out or whatever. He's driving a car. They, they pull off at a store. Literally, this kid had no idea. They pull off at a store. He, you know, he's like, yeah, I don't really want anything, whatever. So he stays in the car. These people go in there and they rob the store. You know, they, they rob it like they had guns with them. The kid literally had no idea. He... Gets, you know, they, they go away, whatever. He finds out afterwards. They arrest the kids. And he goes to jail. And he went to jail for a long time. Like, he was in jail for like five years because they was like armed robbery or whatever. He had no idea that's what they were doing. He had no idea that was what was going to happen. But you know what? He went to jail anyway because he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And you better be careful who you're driving with and who you're with. And you know, in the Air Force, Brother Hudson can attest to this. In the Air Force... You know, they, they preach to us a lot about DUI driving. You know, that's a big thing in the Air Force. No DUIs, no DUIs. If you get a DUI, you get kicked out. You get you go to prison. They take all this stuff. But you know what? If you're in the vehicle with somebody who's been drinking, you haven't been drinking, you don't drink, but you're in the vehicle, you're just as guilty. Period. And that's just a principle of life. And that happens a lot. And these kids, you better figure it out. Who you're with is going to mess you up. Because why was Lot in Sodom? He shouldn't have been there. We already preached on that. But he was there. They took over and they took him with him. Anyway, that's not part of the sermon, but just wanted to throw that in as part of the introduction. But look at verse 13, Genesis 14, 13. The Bible says, And there came one that had escaped, and told Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, 
brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abraham. So Abraham's uh, living in, 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 in uh, the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, and he's got three friends there, Mamre, Eschol, and Aner, and they have a confederacy with Abraham, so there's four uh, rulers there that are living together. And look at verse 14. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, and here's, here's what the sermon is about tonight. The Bible says, He armed his trained servants born in his house, in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Abram was ready to go to battle because, you know, he didn't know that this was going on. He had, he had no connection to Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he had no idea that any of this was going to happen. But when he heard that Lot had been taken captive, Abram was ready. He said, you know what, let's go to battle and let's go get, uh, let's go, go get our brother Lot. And I want to talk to you about this, and I want to show you about uh, certain things about Abram, why he was ready to go to battle just at a moment's notice. And it was because he'd been preparing for a long time. And I, and I want to show you that. Um, point number one is this. If, if, you, look, if you look at that, that, that uh, phrase there, it says he armed, in verse 14, it says he armed his trained servants born in his own house. It says he armed them, he trained them, and they were born in his house. Now, the order that the Bible gives us is that they were armed, they were trained, and they were born. But the order that that happened was exactly the opposite. Alright? They weren't armed, then trained, then born. They were first born, then trained, then armed. And because they were born, and they were trained, and they were armed, they were ready to, be, to go out into battle. Does that make sense? So point number one is this. The Bible says that um, they were born, he, Abraham had servants that were born in his own house. And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with this. The Bible says that, um, there, what verse was it? 14. He armed his trained servants born in his own house. Now the Bible calls the church and the congregation and the, and the family that we have here, it calls it a household. If you, um, Go with me. You can go with me to the book. Go, go with me to Galatians in the New Testament. Galatians chapter number six. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter number six. And look at verse number ten. Galatians chapter number six. And look at verse number ten. Galatians chapter number six and verse number ten. The Bible says. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So the Bible says that, that the Bible refers to Christians, to our brothers in Jesus Christ. He calls them the household of faith. If you go with me to the very next book, Ephesians chapter number 2, and look at verse 19. Galatians, Ephesians chapter number 2, and look at verse 19. The Bible says, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, alright, and of the household of God. The Bible says that when you get saved, you are a fellow citizen with the saints. Alright? The Bible says that if you are a saved Christian, you are a saint tonight. And I don't have the, the verses to go through it right now because it's not part of the sermon. But the Bible says that you are a fellow citizen with the saints. And you do a study of that word saints. You get a concordance and look up every time the Bible uses the word saints. Saints is referring to born again believers in Jesus Christ. You know, you say, oh, do you believe in saints? Yes, I do. You're looking at one. I am a saint tonight. And if you're saved, you are a saint according to the Bible. Because that, that word, the word saint means holy. It means to be set aside. It means to be put aside. And God has put us aside and He's made us holy because we got saved. But He said there in Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and look what He says, and of the household 
of God. So Abraham, the Bible says that he had servants that were born in his house. Now at this point, does Abraham have any children? No. But he has many children being born in his house. And the Bible says that the church, the congregation, is a household of faith. The, right, the Bible refers to Christians as being born again. Or, or born into the household of faith. You don't have to turn there. I'll read these verses for you. Very familiar verses. John chapter number 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 7 says this, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. 1 Peter 1, 23 says this, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So the Bible says that the church, the congregation, the Christians, we are a household of faith. It says that we are the household of God. The Bible says that the way you become, you get put into the household of God, is by being born again. The Bible says that Abraham had people that were born in his household. I'm trying to explain to you, why was Abraham ready to fight against Five, uh, four kings who had just defeated six kings. Why was he ready to go? Because as we read there in the story, the Bible says that he took his armed and trained servants, which was 318. Now think about this. Is 318 servants a lot of servants compared to four nations that just destroyed 11 nations? It's not. doesn't seem like much. But Abraham was able to go fight with them. Here's why. Because he was having kids in his household. And I'm trying to, uh, what I'm trying to show you and explain to you is that for us here, as the church of God, as the congregation of God, as, as the household of God, the only way that we're going to be able to go out and fight against this world and be in the battle that we're supposed to be in is if we have children too. We've got to have servants born in our household. You say, Pastor Jimenez, are you saying for us to have kids? Well, I mean, yeah, I have physical kids, praise the Lord for that. But I'm talking about spiritual children. I'm talking about the Bible gives us this principle of having spiritual children. Let me, let me show you. Um... Giving birth in the Bible is a picture of reproducing yourself, alright? You know, when my, when my wife and I had a child, we reproduced ourselves. We have a son who, you know, when he's good, acts like his dad, and when he's bad, acts like his mom, right? <laughs> no, I'm just joking, that's not true. But, um, you know what, if you, if you talk to my son, you'll see a lot of qualities in him, a lot of things that are just like me. You'll see a lot of things that are just like his wife. You'll see things, he'll, the things that he does, or, or parts of his body, like his ears or his hairline, that look like one of us or the other. Why? Because when we had a son, we reproduced ourselves. And, and God says that he wants us as Christians to also reproduce ourselves. When someone gives birth to a child, they're reproducing themselves. And Christians should also be reproducing themselves. Paul never had children. But the Bible says he had many spiritual children. Let me show you. Go with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter number 1. Towards the end of the Old Testament. If you read 9 chapters a day, you know, you're, you know where all these uh, books are now. So praise the Lord for that. But go with me to 1 Timothy, chapter number 1, and look at verse number 1. 1 Timothy, chapter number 1, and look at verse number 1. The Bible says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. He says, unto Timothy, and look what he says, my own son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now it is proven, and we know that Paul had, he was never married and he had no physical children. Now let, let me just put this disclaimer in. Okay? Paul made that choice because he wanted to serve God with his life. Obviously, you know, 
The Bible says that a pastor should be married and should have kids, but Paul wasn't a pastor, he was a missionary. He was starting churches, but he never, you know, pastored a church as that was his job. But obviously the Bible tells us that Peter was married, and that, and the Bible tells us about other people that they, you know, that you should be married and have kids. But Paul decided, you know, and he was strong enough to do that, he decided he wasn't going to have any kids because he just wanted to serve God with his life. But Paul says, you know, unto Timothy, and he says, my own son, not in the flesh, he says, in the faith. What was he saying? Paul was saying, Timothy was my son. Why? Because Paul got Timothy saved. Now, when he called him son, Timothy never referred to Paul as his father, because we have one God and Father, you know, above. Jesus told us that we should call no man father, because that's a blasphemy. That's a name referred to God only. But Paul many times called Christians that he led to the Lord, people that he got saved. He said, you're my son in the faith. Uh, You're there in 1 Timothy chapter number 1, drop down to verse number 8. Look at 1 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. The Bible says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war good warfare. So we see another reference. He says, Hey, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. He said, Timothy, you're my son. A physical son? No. He said, You're my son in the faith. Go to 2 Timothy chapter number 1. And look at verse 1. It's right after 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter number 1, and look at verse 1. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at 2 Timothy, chapter number 2, and verse 1. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2, and verse 1. Thou therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So you see there, in the letters that Paul wrote Timothy, in 1st and 2nd Timothy, multiple times he's calling him son. He's saying, my dearly beloved son in the faith. He's saying, you're, you're my son in the faith. Why? Because Paul reproduced himself in Timothy. There was, you know, when my wife and I got married, there was two of us, and then we had a son, and then there was three of us, and then we had another son, and there was four of us, and hopefully we'll have three or four or five or six or however many more sons, and there'll be more of us. You'd reproduce yourself. And Paul said, hey, Timothy, when I found you, you were saved, but I gave you the gospel. He said, I got to save, and he said, you're my son in the faith. Go to Titus 1.4, very next verse after 2 Timothy. Very next uh, book, Titus chapter number 1 and verse 4. Look at what it says. It says, to Titus, mine own son after the common faith. So he says, Titus, how are you the son of, uh, of Paul? Well, after the common faith. It says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Go with me to the book of uh, Philemon. Chapter number 1. And look at verse 10. Philemon, chapter number 1. And look at verse 10. The Bible says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. So now look, Paul was in some derelict, you know, going around town, having eight different kids with eight different women. You know, these aren't like all the, you know, these ghetto, you know, parents out there that are just having kids with all, you know... Five different kids, five different dads, five different moms. That's not Paul. Paul isn't going around and saying, Oh, Onesimus, my, my son that I'm not paying you know, child support to, and uh, Timothy, my son that I'm not... That, that's not what's going on. He's saying, Timothy, you're my son in the faith. Titus, you're my son in the faith. Uh, Onesimus, my son in the faith. He's saying, you're my son. Why? Because I reproduce myself in you. Third uh, John, chapter number 1, and verse 4, John said this, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, referring to his children in the faith. 
The Bible teaches us this principle about reproducing yourself and about having... Uh, that's why it calls, it's called being born again because you get born into the family of God. And when somebody gets you saved, the Bible says, you know, you can say, hey, that's my son in the faith. Hey, that's my child. And the reason Abraham was able to go out to battle against these kings is because the Bible says that he had sons, uh, he had servants that were born in his household. And I'm trying to explain to you that we will never win the fight today if churches like ours don't decide that we're going to reproduce ourselves. So how do we re- re- reproduce ourselves? By going soul winning. By getting people saved. When you share the gospel with somebody, and somebody decides to bow their heads and ask Jesus Christ to save them, and they decide to turn away from, you know, whatever they were trusting in before to save them, and they put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you just reproduce yourself. And our church should constantly be giving birth to new Christians by soul winning. You know, that's why, you know, we, we ought never have this uh, mentality as a church where we look down on people when they're not dressed the way the Bible says they should be dressed. Or maybe they don't have their hair exactly like the Bible says, uh, you, you're, you should have your hair. Or maybe they don't do the things, or maybe they're listening to things, or doing things exactly like We ought never, because look, it's a good thing to have young Christians who just don't know. You know, eventually, you know, the pastor will preach a sermon and they'll, they'll realize what the Bible says about certain things. But look, if they come in here wearing their pants or wearing their whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're saying things they shouldn't be saying and they're cursing or whatever. Hey, look, just be patient with it because it's a good thing that we have new Christians. It's a good thing that we have people who aren't mature. Not everybody knows everything that you know because we always should be reproducing ourselves. We should always have small children in the faith. And you know what? You should have a goal to reproduce yourself in someone else. You know, we just finished uh, the month of January here is pretty much done. You know what would be a good goal for you to have in year 2000? You say, well, New Year's is done. I, you know, well, just add, add one more thing because you already gave up on your New Year's resolutions you started. So just add one more for the month of February. And why don't you decide, by the end of the year, I'm going to have somebody singing, singing next to me who I got saved, who I brought to church, who I got them, you know, they got baptized because I brought them and they're soul winning and they're reading the Bible and they're praying and I reproduce myself. So you, like Paul, can say, hey, so-and-so, my own son in the faith. We ought to be having children you know, you say, physical children? Yes. Hey, I'm all for it. Have as many kids as you, as you can, you know, if you're married, obviously, and, you know, all of that. But, um, you know, have kids. That's how the Mormon church is growing. You think they're converting people? They are not converting people. They knock on a lot of doors, but people say, I don't want anything to do with that. You know how they're growing? Kids. They got families, and they got 10 and 12 kids each. And uh, so have physical kids, but more than that, have spiritual kids. Go out and get somebody saying. Go out and decide, you know what, Uh, I want to have somebody sitting next to me that I reproduce myself in them. Because you know what the sad thing is for most Christians, is most people are going to die and go to heaven and be there by themselves. Paul said this, I don't have the verse in front of me, but Paul said that my joy and my crown of rejoicing will be all the people that I got saved when I get to heaven. Paul, Paul said this, when I get to heaven, he said, I'm looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ, I'm looking forward to the crown that God is going to give me, I'm looking forward to the reward, but he said, you know what I'm looking forward to the most? He said, I'm more than I'm looking forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. More than I'm looking forward to maybe the kingdom that I'll get to, to rule during the millennium. More than I'm looking forward to the, the crown. He said, I'm looking forward to get to heaven and meet all the people that I got saved. That's what Paul said. And you know what? That's going to be an exciting time for Paul. Because you know what? Paul, he got people saved. That got people saved. That got people saved. And if you're saved today as a Gentile, you're saved because of the ministry of Paul. And Paul's going to have a great day of rejoicing when he gets to heaven. And I'm going to walk up to Paul. And I'm going to shake his hand. I'm going to say, thank you, Paul, for getting the gospel to the Gentiles. 
name. You're going to walk up to him and thousands of people are going to walk up and say, Paul, praise the Lord. You know what I want? I want to get to heaven and have hundreds of people and thousands of people at the end of my life come up to me and say, hey, thanks for getting me saved. I never went to your church and I regret it. And that's what they will say, by the way. Say, I, I never got baptized and I regret that. And I never went soul winning and I never did anything and I regret that. But thank you for getting me saved. But you know what the sad thing is? That the average Christian is going to get to heaven and have nobody thank them for anything. You know why? Because they didn't do anything. You know you don't get thanked for anything if you don't do anything. <laughs> that's usually how it works. And, that's, and that'll be a sad thing. I don't want you to get to heaven and just, I'm here. You know, who did you bring with you? I won't be talking to people. I won't be saying, hey, yeah, you know, yeah, I don't remember. I knocked on your door, but yeah, you got saved. Praise the Lord. And you know, uh, I, you know I, I praise God that I've been, you know, out soul winning. And I was like four years old. You know, my dad used to take a soul winning when we were kids. And I remember the first person I ever talked to at the door. I was like seven years old. And my dad made me talk. And my dad said, you're going to talk at this door. And I said, no. And he said, you're going to talk. And he knocked. And he stepped back. And I had to talk. <laughs> and, um, and I remember, it was, I don't know, my dad might not remember this, but it, I was seven years old. And it was a, like an older, middle-aged, real tall black guy. And I was like seven years old. And I'm trying to give him the gospel. And I remember I went through the gospel real quick. Like I went through all the verses in like three minutes. Flat. I'm just like... Because I was nervous, you know. And the guy, he, uh, he, wasn't, you know, he wasn't rude, but he's like, oh, thank you, but no thanks. And he just shut the door. But you know what? I praise God. That I, you know, and, and we go out soul winning, and you know, we get people saved every week. And I may never see those people again, but I'll see them in heaven one day. And I'll be, I'll be glad. You know what? The garden is not going to be as important when I get to heaven. You know what I'm saying? Oh, well, uh, Saturdays, that's when I do my garden. Or Saturdays, that's when I do this. You know, Saturday, that's when I have my hobby. You know, when I get to heaven, I'll be glad that I had no hobbies, but people got saved. I'll be glad that I, that I had no garden, and I accidentally killed my wife's garden when she tried to do it, but people got saved. That's what I'll be glad about. And that's the purpose. And you know what? Abraham was able to go out and fight a fight and beat kings who beat other nations because he was having children in his house. Because he was getting people to be born. But not only that, people were being born, but then they were being trained. Go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter number 28. Matthew, chapter number 28. And look at verse number 19. Matthew, chapter number 28. And look at verse number 19. This is what's known as the Great Commission. Found five times. In the Gospel, Matthew chapter number 28, and look at verse 19. The Bible says, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, that's talking about teaching them the Gospel, getting them saved, baptizing them, because that's the very next step after you get saved, you should get baptized. Not before, we don't get baptized before you get saved, you get taught the Gospel, you get saved, then you're baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 20. A lot of times we stop there. The Great Commission. Go get people saved. That's not it. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Part of the Great Commission is getting people saved. The other part is getting them baptized. And you know what the third part is? It's teaching them to observe all things. That's why we have church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Why, why do we have so many services? You know, you have church on Sunday morning, you have church on Sunday night, you have church on Wednesday night. Well, do I really need to come to all those if you want to get trained? Because look, if you only come on, if you only, let's say, you know, I, I can only come on Wednesday nights. Well, all you're going to learn is John. And John's a great book, but there's more of the Bible than John. You say, well, I only come on Sunday nights. Well, all you're learning is Genesis. 
Well, I'll only come on Sunday morning. Well, then you're only learning what I decide I'm going to teach you on Sunday morning. You know, we, we, the point of church is to train you. The point of church, you know, we don't just get up to preach a sermon just because, it, you know, we got to kill 45 minutes before we have cheesecake or something. We get up and we do this. The purpose of it is to train you, to teach you the Bible, to get you to open the Bible. That's why we do nine chapters a day. That's why we, we, you know, we're going to ask you to pray more than you've ever prayed before. That's why we're going to uh, do all these things. Why? Because we're trying to train you. Because there's a fight, my friend. I don't know if you understand it, but there's a war that we're fighting, and we got to get people born into this household. But then we don't just keep them as babies. We got to train them up, and we got to teach them because we want you to go fight too. Go with me. Uh, go back to Second Timothy, and look at this verse. Second Timothy, chapter number two. Second Timothy, chapter number two, and look at verse one. Second Timothy, chapter number two, and look at verse one. Look what Paul said to his spiritual son. He said, Thou therefore my son. He said, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And look at verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You say, What is, you know, I, you say, Pastor Jimenez, I'm trying to understand your ministry. I'm trying to understand the purpose of your church. What is, you know, I'm not trying to hide anything from you. Let me make it to you. Let me, let me just. Make it real clear for you. This is the purpose of a local New Testament Bible-based church. I'm not talking about the average church in America today, because the average church in America has walked away from the Bible a long time ago. But let me tell you what the purpose of church is. We go get people saved. Okay? They get born again. We get them baptized. Then we teach them the Bible, so that then they can go get somebody saved, so that they can go get somebody baptized, so that they can go teach the Bible to somebody, so then that person can get somebody saved, and then that person can get that person baptized, and then that person can get taught the Bible, so that they can go get somebody saved, so that they can get baptized, so that they can, and you know what that, what we do when we do that? We reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know why we're not reaching the gospel, the world with the gospel today? Here's why. Because somebody got saved, somebody got baptized, somebody got taught, and then they went out and they got somebody saved, and they got somebody baptized, and they got taught, and then they went out, but they got nobody saved. And somebody dropped the ball. The Bible says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And you know what the sad thing is? That if you hide the gospel, you know, I gave you the gospel. I, I showed you how to be saved. And then you take that gospel, and you got saved, but then you hide it. You know who you're hurting? I'll tell you who you're not hurting. You're not hurting me, because I'm already saved. You know, you're not hurting the other people in this church because they're already saved. You know who you're hurting? You're hurting the person who needs it most, the person who's going to die and go to hell. Because they never heard the gospel. And you know the gospel, but you refuse to go. And you refuse to reproduce yourself. And you refuse to be trained. And that's why you say, well, I can't go give the gospel because, I, you know, what if somebody asks me a question? I'm not going to know how to explain. You know, I don't know. Maybe if you got trained and you went to church and you read your Bible and you did a study and you came to all three services and you read the Bible, you'd be trained and you'd be able to go out and show people. Because that's what the Bible says. And Abraham was able to fight a war because he was getting people born in his household. But not only that, he was training them. Paul said, he said, The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. He said, I want you to teach other people how to give the gospel. He said, I want you to teach other people how to live right. He said, I want you to teach other people what the Bible does say about certain stands and certain convictions. But not only that, he had armed and trained servants. So he trained them, but then he also armed them. Go with me to Ephesians chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter number 6. 
and look at what the Bible says, Ephesians chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter number 6. He armed them. Why, were, why did he arm them? Because he had to fight. Why did he arm them? Because he had to fight. You know, we're training you so that you can go out armed and then you can fight. And that, and that leads us to the third point, which is getting armed. Look at Ephesians chapter number 6. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, Ephesians 6.10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And then he goes on and he begins to explain to you what these... You know, I won't preach it. On a Sunday morning, a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon entitled, The Armor of God. And we went through and explained all these different things here. But he, but, but he says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked... And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the, sword of, which is the Word of God. Praying always uh, with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And he says, look at verse 19. It's very important. He just got done telling them. I, he, he, just got, he told them, look, we're in a fight. He said, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities. We're wrestling against powers, against rulers of darkness. He said, we are in a fight. And he said, you got to put on the armor of God. He said, put it out in the armor. And he said, here's why. Look at verse 19. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that... Therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You say, why do you always emphasize so many? Because the Bible emphasizes so many. The Bible says you ought to open your mouth and you ought to go out so many. And that's the point. Like, period. Seriously, that is the point. I, I don't know how else to, like, you know, say it. If you are a Christian and you are not a soul winner, you completely missed the boat. Like, you don't even understand the Bible. Because the point of Christianity is to get people saved. And if you don't get anybody saved, but you build a great business, if you don't get anybody saved, but you, you, know, you raise great children, and you're a great mother, and you're a great father, and you're a great husband, and you have a nice house, and you have a nice car, and you have a nice boat, but you never get anybody saved, you wasted your life. Period. That's what the Bible says. And Paul said, you put on all this armor to go in the fight. He said, that utterance may be given. He said that I may open my mouth. You don't have to turn there... Uh, but First Timothy chapter number 6 and verse 12, Paul said, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. One unto thou art also called it, and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now, go back to Genesis 14, please. But the reason that, Paul, that Abraham was able to fight this battle, the Bible says he armed his trained servants born in his household. How was he able to fight the fight? He had servants that were born in his household, he trained them, and then he armed them to go fight. Look at verse 15 in Genesis 14, 15. And he divided himself against them. He and his servants by night and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Now the Bible says this, that Anar and Eshcol and Mamre went with Abram. 
the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us that they brought any other men with them. You know, other than his own men, his 318 servants. The Bible doesn't necessarily tell us that these, it tells us that these three men with him, with him, went with him because they were part of his confederacy, but it doesn't mention these other men. Now, I'm not saying that they weren't there. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't mention them. They might have been there. But the emphasis is given on his servants. Look at verse 14. It says, And he divided himself against them, he, referring to Abram, and his servants by night, and smoked them, referring to those uh, four kings. <coughs> Excuse me. And the emphasis is given to Abram's servants in the fact that they won this battle. Look at verse 16. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Now again, isn't it amazing to you that there's four kings who have defeated 11 kingdoms, and Abraham takes 318 trained servants and beats them, I mean whoops them. Say, so how is that? Well, here, here, here's why. Leviticus 26.8, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. This is a promise that God gave. He said, and five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Because you know why Abraham was able to fight that battle? Because God delivered that battle for him. And because if God is before us, who can be against us? And you know what? Let me say this before I forget to say this because I didn't put it in my notes. But God expects you to fight. Brother Hudson made a, a, a real good point to me, which, you know, I, 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 obviously I knew it, but I just hadn't put it on my, on, on my notes when I was preaching about being on the... Uh, offensive versus the defensive and you know and what the Bible says and, the, and Jesus Christ said this he said upon this rock I will build my church and he said and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it so Jesus said that he was going to build his church and he said that you know and a lot of times we'll look at that promise we'll say hey God said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church but you know a lot of times we read to that verse and we just forget about you know we just kind of read it skim through it but if you think about what that verse is saying Jesus said I will he said upon this rock I will build my church. He said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now think about this. Do gates move? No. Okay? Gates, if you think of like a castle or a house or something, and it's got a gate around it, and the only way, Jesus said, the gates are not going to prevail against the church. The idea is, the understanding is, what Jesus was saying was, that the church was going to be charging hell, and the gates of hell weren't going to prevail. Okay, We think, oh, you know, hell isn't going to be able to prevail against us. No, we should be fighting that. We should be on the offensive. We should be fighting the good fight of faith. We should be out knocking on their doors, trying to get them saved. We should be the ones trying to convert them. Because we're in a fight. And there's no point of training you. You know, could you imagine the military taking you through, you know, eight weeks of boot camp or however long it is now, and then just saying, all right, go home. You know, they go put you through all this training. Look, they put you through training, they're going to get their use out of you. And the Bible says that the church is to train you, and so many people come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and they just eat up the training, eat up the training, learn all the Bible, get all the doctrine, they learn all this stuff, and then they do nothing with it. You're getting trained so you can go fight. You're getting taught how to use the, the sword so that you can go and fight somebody with it. That's the purpose of church. But look at, uh, look at verse 18. We'll read these verses and I'll tell you a little bit about this. Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be... 
most, uh, I'm sorry, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and gave him tithes of all. Now, I'm not going to talk about Melchizedek. If you come back to next Sunday night, and we're going to preach an entire sermon on the subject of Melchizedek found in, in here. This is why I said we're going to be in Genesis 14 uh, for two weeks. Melchizedek is a very interesting character in the Bible, and I'll just say this, and I'll prove it next week. If you don't know it, Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Okay? So you say, who's Melchizedek? Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You say, I've never heard that before. I'll prove it to you from the Bible. That's what the Bible says. And Melchizedek is a very important part of our salvation. If there was no Melchizedek, we could not be saved. Period. You say, I don't get that. I'll, I'll prove it to you from the Bible next Sunday night. I'm just putting that advertising there. In, uh, but Melchizedek next week. So we're not going to deal with those verses tonight. But, but I do want you to see this. And I don't want to preach on tithing because this morning we preached a sermon on tithing. And we went in, in real detail of what the Bible says is the right tithing. And, and, you know, get the CD if you're interested. But almost 95% of Christians tithe incorrectly because they don't understand what the Bible says about it. But we preached a whole sermon on that. And I don't, I don't want to go into that. But if you look at verse 14 and 20, uh, uh, Genesis 14 and verse uh, 20, the Bible says that Melchizedek, who is Jesus Christ, said to Abraham, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. So he told him, Look, Abraham, God won this battle for you. You didn't win it. Your 318 soldiers didn't do it. God won this battle for you. And then Abraham gave tithes of all. And that was part of the sermon that we were preaching this morning. And we're saying how you should tithe off of what God gives you. And when you tithe, you're acknowledging that every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. So Abraham, when he gave tithes, because this is the first mention of tithing in the Bible, just another thing for you to know, Genesis 14, it says that they went to war, first mention of war in the Bible. All in Genesis 14. And when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, he was acknowledging that everything that he won was given to him by God. And that's what tithing is in the Bible. So when you tithe uh, to God, you're acknowledging. But I don't want to preach this sermon. We preached that this morning. So if you're interested, you can get to see or listen to it online. But look at verse 21. Verse 21 shows us what the battle is about. What the purpose of all of this is. Genesis 14, 21. The Bible says, And the king of Sodom... Now, think about this. Is Sodom a good place or a bad place? Sodom is a bad place. The Bible says that it was wicked... It was a bad place, okay? The Bible says, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram. Look what the king of Sodom says to Abram. Because Abram just came back, right? He just destroyed the king. He comes with all this, uh, all this riches, all this gold, all this stuff. He comes back with all these people. And the king of Sodom, who in a spiritual application of the story could represent Satan, he says to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Did you see that? He said, Give me the persons. But take the good side of You say, Pastor Menace, what's this battle that we're supposed to be in? What's this fight that we're supposed to be in? The battle is for the person. The battle is for the souls of men. The battle is for men. Satan doesn't care about money. Satan doesn't care about riches. Satan doesn't care about anything but people and about people's souls. And that's what we should care about. The king of Sodom said to him, he said, hey, take all the money, but give me the people. He said, give me the persons. Mark 8.36 says this, Jesus said this, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You know, what if you, you just gain all this money, you get all this income, you, you get all these riches of the world, but you lose your soul, you said, you've done, you've, you've just lost everything. 
Proverbs 20.14 says this. You have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Proverbs 20.14 says, this, this is what, you know, the book of Proverbs is just proverb. It, it's a proverb. It's teaching you wisdom. And Proverbs 20.14 says, it is not, it is not safe to buy her, but when he has gone his way, then he boasted. You say, what does that mean? It says, you know, he, he's giving us this, this illustration of somebody uh, at, at a marketplace. And they'll walk up and they'll see something that has a lot of value to it. And they'll say, it is not. It is not. You know what I'm saying? They'll walk up to, to a, you know, you go, think, think you go to a used car lot. And you see a real nice Ferrari there, you know, a real nice car. And you'll say, yeah, you know, that's not worth $30,000. That's not worth four. It is not. You know, the, the, the buyer says, it is not. But look what he said. It is not, it is not, says the buyer. But when he has gone his way, then he boasted. So he says, yeah, you know, that's not worth that much. But then when you, you, you decide, you know, you give in, you say, oh man, maybe this Ferrari isn't worth that much. So you sell it for $10,000. And then when he, got, when he goes his way, he's boasting and bragging about the good deal that he got. And that's, and that's what Satan does, my friend. You know, these kids, you, got, you kids need to realize, hey, Rebecca, wake up. These kids, you know what these kids need to realize and these kids need to understand? Look, listen up. And I'm telling you something that's going to save your life. Okay? Because somebody's going to come to you, some boy with slick words is going to come up to you, or some girl's going to come up to you, and they're going to say, hey, that virginity that you got, it's not that important. It's not. It's not. You don't have to go. You don't have to go to the, the, the marriage altar of a virgin. It's not that important. It's not a big deal. But you know what? When they go their way, they're going to be bragging about it. They're going to be saying, oh, yeah. Yeah. I was with her. Yeah, yeah. Check that one off. Yep. No, I got another one. Yep, boys. That's what they talk about. It is not. It is not, saith the buyer. But when you go this way, then you boast it. That's what the Bible says. You let somebody come up to you and say, it's not a big deal. You try those drugs. It's not a big deal. You, you go this way. Skip church. Don't read your Bible. It's not a big deal. That's what, but when they go their way, they're boasting. And, and, and what you miss out on is the value of a person. He said, you know, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, take all the money. Give me the persons, take all the riches. Give me the persons, take all the people. Because the value of a soul is worth everything. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and loses his own soul? That's what the Bible says. Look at verse 23, Genesis 14, 23. That I will not take... Abram responds to Satan there, the king of Sodom. He says that I will not take from a thread even a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. So he, Abram responds to him, he's like, I'm not going to take any of your filthy money. He said, I'm not going to take any of your riches. I'm not going to take anything from you, because I don't want you to say that you made Abram rich. And that reminds me of a, of, of a song that we used to sing. Um, I forget what the name of the song is, but the verse says, I'm standing on the rock of ages, safe from all the storms that rages. Rich, but not from Satan's wages. I'm standing on the solid rock. And that reminds me of that song. Because Abram is saying, look, I'm rich, but not from your wages. He said, I'm rich, but not from your wages. I don't need your money. I don't need your goods. He said, he said you know, because he said, you want me to give you the persons and keep the money. He said, I don't want any of it. I don't want your money. I don't want your, uh, uh, I don't want anything from the world. He said, I'm just going to fight for the people. He said, I came for Lot. He said, I came for Lot's wife. And I came for Lot's kids. Because Abram understood the value of a person. Abram doesn't push his conviction. Uh, well, um, look at verse 24. We're almost done, I promise. Verse 24. The Bible says this. Save only. So Abram said, I'm not going to take any of your money. But then he says this. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with him, Anor, Eshkar, and Mamre, 
Let them take their portion. So, you said, if you remember, I told you, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre went to battle with him. Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre were not servants of Abraham. They weren't his kids. They were grown men who went to battle with him. And Abraham said this, he said, he said, I'm not going to take any of your money. He said, save only. He said, except for this, what the men ate on the way, because we were eating, you know, some of this stuff as we were traveling. And he said, and then Anor, Eshkol, and Waimri, they're grown men, they can make their own decision. If they want to take the portion, let them take the portion. What, what is Abraham teaching here? That he's not, he doesn't push his convictions on others. And you know, that's the difference between a Baptist and like every other religion, or at least the way a Baptist should be, is, you know, you come to this church and we're going to preach hard and we're going to tell you what the Bible says, whether you like it or not, we're just going to tell you, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, but then you know what? You do whatever you want. You dress however you want, you act however you want, you listen to whatever you want, you do whatever you want, and it doesn't bother me. I still love you. I still think you're great. I still, I'm still glad you're part of our church. Because, you know, some churches, they'll have rules. They'll say, if you're going to come to our church, you know, they'll have like these uh, things you sign. Uh, these contracts, or I forget what they call them, constitutions, where they say, if you're going to be a member of our church, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to... I mean, this happens. You know, a lot of churches will have rules. We have no rules. We just preach hard. You say, well, what if somebody comes that doesn't believe your way? Look, if somebody comes to our church that believe, that doesn't believe that salvation is by faith through Jesus Christ, you say, are you going to kick him out? No. Because we have no rules. You know what we'll do? We're just going to preach it, preach it, preach it, preach it. Eventually, they're going to get saved or they're going to leave. That's it. And I'm glad if they come, because it's more of an opportunity to train them and give them the gospel and get, and get, them, and get them the Bible. But, you know, we see there that he wasn't saying, he wasn't speaking for other men. Now, notice this though, the men, his young servants didn't take any wages. Okay? And that's something we got to understand too, as men, especially, as the father of the house or the, the, the main person in the house, you know, if, you don't, if you're not married and, and you have kids, you know, if you're the authority of the house, you got to realize, hey... You're in charge. Abram said, I'm not taking any of your money, and my 318 servants are not taking any of your money. These three men can do whatever they want because they're grown men. But he said, my people aren't taking any money. And then they went on. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the Bible principle there. The Bible says in Genesis 18.17, you can turn there if you want, Genesis 18.17, this is the last verse we'll look at. God was debating whether or not to uh, let uh, Abram uh, know a few things there. And in Genesis 18.17, the Bible says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And look at verse 19. Isn't this a wonderful thing that God says about Abraham? He says, For I know him. That he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord. To do justice and judgment. That the Lord may bring upon Abram, Abraham that which he hath spoken of. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God said, you know what? I know Abraham. I know that his kids are going to do right. I know that he's going to command them. I know that he's going to teach them. I know that he's going to train them. I know that he's going to arm them. And I know that I can trust them to go win battles. Because they're born. They're trained. They're armed. You say, what is the purpose of church? To get you born again, to get you trained, and then to get you armed. And if you miss any of those steps, you fail. The mission was not accomplished. Because the purpose of our life is to go get people saved, to bring them in. And look, wouldn't, wouldn't you be glad if one year from now, you know, the last Sunday night in January of 2012, you got one person or two people or a family sitting in church, and you say, man, I got them saved. I'm the one, I knocked on their door. And I got them saved. And they came to church. And then I talked to them about getting baptized. And they got baptized. And then I, I took them out soul winning. And I, wouldn't that be a great thing? I, I, I would love to 
You know, and I praise God that in, in, my, in my life I have been able to see a few people who I led to the Lord. And then they got baptized and then they're soul winning and they're serving God. And that's what God wants for you. He wants you to end your life and say, man, I've got all these spiritual kids. Just like Paul. I want you to get to heaven and say, man, hey, so-and-so, man, praise the Lord. You know, I, I remember, I remember when, I, when you got saved, you know, it was cold and it was rainy, it was wet. And I, I was debating whether or not to go. But I said, you know, I'm just going to go soul winning. And then you got saved. Wouldn't that be a great thing? That a soul got saved. Say, well, what's, what's the value of a soul? Is it worth getting a little wet? Is it worth getting a little cold? Is it worth getting a little discomforted? The Bible says, it's worth the entire world. He said, if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul, he said, you, you, you haven't profited anything. So let's be the type of Christians that are going to get born again, that are going to get trained, and then they're going to take the armament, and they're going to go fight the battle against the devil. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Father, we love you, Lord, so much. Thank you for our church. Father, I ask that you'd help everybody.